Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So last night, I had the Red Sox game on. Roger Clemens was in the booth, and he was raising money for the Jimmy Fund. And my significant other, who does not follow baseball, kind of was asking, I mean, she knew who he was, but I don't know. She asked some open-ended question about him. And I, I thought about all the thoughts and emotions that I've had about Roger Clemens, loving him, hating him when he pitched for the Yankees, elation, disappointment. Then there's the whole juicing scandals and how he handled his own testimony, which was crushingly disappointing. And I was just looking at this guy, and then I finally said, you know who he is? He's the guy who has struck out 20 batters in a game twice. No other pitcher's ever done that. No other pitcher has struck out 21 batters. And that's an amazing thing. Maybe that's the most important thing. We're going to talk today about sports and about what's the most important thing. Well, hello. Uh, this is one of our periodic uh, episodes about uh, the sportsing. The sportsing would be the running, the kicking, the hitting, uh, the throwing, uh, that kind of thing. So there are a whole. There's a whole segment of our audience that does not want to hear about the sportsing, and that's why we didn't run a promo. <laughs> <laughs> but now some of you are probably turning off the show right now. Uh, but maybe you could tell some other people who do enjoy the sportsing uh, that they should be listening right now. In the second segment of the show today, we're going to talk to uh, occasional guest Ben Lindbergh, uh, who's uh, kind of a, you know, he's a, a humanistic quant about baseball. I think that would be a, a fair way to describe Ben and, and, and a laudatory way to s- describe Ben. Uh, so we're going to talk about a whole bunch of baseball topics that have arisen. And then at the end of the show, we're going to talk to a football writer about the involvement of Mr. Jay-Z uh, in the NFL. Is this a deal with the devil? Uh, or is it, in fact, as Jay-Z would prefer to have us believe, um, what, perhaps uh, Campbell's nose under the tent, in the introduction of a kind of commitment to social justice and racial awareness that the NFL had not so far achieved. Um, but we're going to begin with deep philosophical questions about that same sport, about the sport uh, known as football, about uh, about the NFL. Um, we'll start, uh, well, I'm very excited, first of all, to get this guest. As I was kind of browsing around for topics, I suddenly stumbled across an article in which she was interviewed. Erin Tarver is an associate professor of philosophy at Oxford College of Emory University and the author of The Eye in Team, Sports Fandom and the Reproduction of identity. So very uh, happy to have her on the show today. I, I think maybe we'll begin with what I regard as maybe one of the less interesting topics that we will uh, undertake in this conversation, but maybe it's more interesting than I think, but it's the topic of the article that I saw your work in. First of all, hello, Aaron Tarver. Hi, nice to meet you and ha- be on the show. Well, it's very it's uh, very exciting to have you. So w- we'll just start with the topic of the article that I saw, which was uh, entitled, Do Running Backs Matter? A, phil- a Philosopher on the NFL's Hottest Profound Question. So you, you chose to take this particular question, which is sort of kind of a hot take sports question, but you chose to take this question in a somewhat more profound 
direction in the, in just in the way that it is a question that's asked about a person as though that person were a thing or a role. Right. So I'll say, first of all, Colin, the danger of asking a philosopher any question is that the first response will be something like, well, but what do you mean by that? And so <laughs> when I hear the question, uh, do running backs matter? My first response is, well, what do we mean by matter exactly? Um, because there's a variety of ways that we use that phrase um, in everyday life. Um, so very frequently when we say that something matters in ordinary language, what we're saying is that that particular thing or person or entity has some sort of moral or metaphysical significance. And so um, my first thought is to say something like, well, of course running backs matter um, as persons, right, as, uh, as human individuals with lives and all of that stuff. Um, Though, of course, in the larger context of the football conversation, this is perhaps not the question that's being asked. Um, but rather although, about- although I think we could kind of split it down the middle there and say, well, so you are talking about a person who has dedicated most of his young life uh, to uh, perfecting and exhibiting a certain kind of skill. And as he's uh, gone into high school and then through college, uh, he has worked hard and risked his own personal safety to be excellent at a particular thing. So to suddenly say, well, that particular thing, that particular skill set, Set may not matter because of a current vogue in play calling. You know, it, it's sort of that's sort of the middle ground between what you were being asked and how you were answering. Right, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that I wanted to highlight in in uh, showing that the question has more potential interpretations than um, might meet the eye to typical uh, sports scene conversation um, <laughs> is that the our um, Ordinary conversation about football, for example, football strategy, and if we say things like, well, running backs don't matter um, in the grand scheme of things in football, um, that tends to shade into our understanding of these people as individuals. And that, to me, um, has, has great ethical significance, particularly when what we're talking about is, as you say, young men who have dedicated themselves to this, um, to quite a dangerous activity um, that is harmful for their long-term health, but benefits perhaps us as sports fans. And for us to, instead of having the conversation in terms of what makes the most um, sense strategically in terms of player prioritization, and to phrase that as running backs don't matter, is I think to invite ourselves to further exacerbate that problem where we view these young men as expendable um, or as people whose long-term health is insignificant to us. Right. We're already in enough trouble just liking football, um, just watching football. We're already complicit enough uh, in the kinds of things that you're talking about without having to begin to describe these people as though they were instruments we could either employ or discard uh, at will. So let's talk about that complicity, because I know this is something that you've wrestled with. You're not looking at this question from a distance. You're looking at it from the the closeness uh, of being a football fan. I struggle with it, too. It hasn't made me not be a football fan, but I know I'm watching something that in a perfect world wouldn't be going on. So so uh, tell me a little bit more about how you see it. 
So I grew up watching football. Um, some of my earliest memories um, are of going to, uh, in fact, LSU college football games um, with my family. Um, so I understand that people um, have really significant attachments to this game. It's part of the fabric of our social life um, in the United States. And so it's quite difficult to say, okay, we're just going to stop doing it. Um, at the same time, I think we need to have serious, larger social conversations about why we continue to do it. And this is especially important as um, statistically um, more and more um, middle-class people um, are pulling their own sons out of the game and saying they wouldn't allow their sons to play this game because it's dangerous, but nevertheless are filling stadiums on on the weekends and and spending all kinds of money um, watching other people's sons um, risk their lives to engage in this activity. All right. So now I have a question which I think that you as a philosopher will enjoy chewing on, assuming you haven't ever done this before. So my question is, could there be such a thing as the equivalent of carbon offsets? You know how like people, they go on an airplane trip and they know the airplanes are really, really bad for the environment. So to make themselves feel better and possibly mitigate the harm of what they've done, they purchase carbon offsets that in some way reduce the release of carbon in, in, into the atmosphere in some other context. So I, I was thinking about that and thinking about how I regard myself as essentially you know, somebody who attempts to be an ethical person. But I'm a big fan of the Green Bay Packers and that's not going to change. So would it be would there be any point ethically or morally if I did a carbon offset if I you know to compensate for my football fandom I raised money for a women's shelter or you know helped out somehow with a trauma ward or something like that <laughs> Go ahead Uh it would it would be nice if if morality worked that way um <laughs> um no, I think that um, one of the most important things from my perspective is to actually um, resist the thing that football as a cultural phenomenon is asking us to do, namely to to understand these men as not actually full human beings at all, but entities who exist um, for us as tools to, um, you know, get our teams, victories, and Super Bowls, and that sort of thing, and to be discarded when they're no longer useful. Um, So what I mean by that is I think uh, one of the most important things for us to do as fans is to listen to players and to hear what they're saying about what they think they need um, in terms of perhaps greater um, medical support from the league when they retire, um, if it means taking seriously their political concerns in other realms instead of um, expecting them to shut up and play and that sort of thing. Um, I think that recognizing and um, respecting their full humanity as individuals who do, in many cases, choose to continue playing um, is the most important thing that we can do. Um, Yeah. All right. So, I mean, one of the problems here, and this gets, uh, I think, to to some of the point of your book, your book, The Eye in Team, Sports Fandom and the Reproduction of Identity by Erin Tarver, our guest, is that if you are rooting for a team, then at a certain point, your interests 
in the team begin to supersede your interest in the individual people who play for the team and into other moral precepts. For example, as a Packers fan, I don't know, a few years ago there was this cornerback who was getting in trouble for maybe some kind of domestic abuse. And I kept kind of hoping that it wasn't really bad domestic abuse. Maybe it was sort of, you know, forgivable. Not in a way, not in a way that Emmanuel yeah. Kant would approve of, uh, but because I just hoped it would go away, you know, which is not, right. once again, a, a clear form of moral thinking. But the problem is that our affection for and allegiance to teams begins to crowd out, crowd out everything else, right? Absolutely. Um, and I think we see this pattern time and time again, the one that you describe in which, um, let's say, a woman comes forward to um, say that she was assaulted or um, there a video emerges um, showing that uh, either a player or a coach was involved in some sort of um, violence against women uh, or the covering up of that thing. And the fan response tends to be um, the desire to look the other way and sometimes outright hostility to the, or actually more than sometimes, frequently outright hostility to the women involved. Um, and I think that this makes a lot of not in terms of justification, but in terms of explanation, when we consider how very central um, sports fandom has become for people in the United States today in terms of creating and maintaining their sense of self and their sense of their, their the I um, for them, uh, as I argue in my book. Um, and so they feel those accusations which are, again, off the field that are leveled against these, these people as people, not as players. Um, but because they've come to identify, these fans have come to identify with the team in this way, they feel those attacks as threats to themselves, as human individuals, threats to their very identity. And I think this is the real danger um, of sports fandom as we know it today. Right. I mean, I have to say that I've been on the other side of these arguments, too, particularly when it comes to public funding uh, of arenas. Uh, and I mean, we had the New England Patriots almost move to uh, Hartford, where I'm sitting right now, quite a few years ago. And I found that fans and sports writers, you couldn't even get them to have a conversation about whether this was worth doing or whether the numbers, the transfer of public monies into private hands, uh, the, the giving of taxpayer monies to a rather wealthy team owner was defensible. They just wanted it so bad that they didn't want to have to think about it. And I would say, well, what if it were $2 billion in tax money, in taxpayer money? Would that bother you? And they just couldn't think clearly anymore. I think for the reason that you're saying that there's there's a lot of ordinary concerns that get suspended in this process of affiliation. I think that's right. I think what's interesting to me as a philosopher is that when we recognize that people are making these kinds of decisions or that they're acting in ways that um, they wouldn't normally, right? So, for example, the, the very same people who would perhaps rail against um, public assistance programs for um, disadvantaged people are, are then, you know, not batting an eye in terms of um, subsidizing, offering public subsidies to these millionaires, right, who, who are owners of the teams. The fact that people are doing this, I think that should make us ask the question, what are they getting from this? Um, and mm -hmm. is there something actually significant that, um, that we need to pay attention to as a moral issue? Um, there's a, a philosopher named William James um, in the 19th century who um, 
wrote this essay uh, called The Moral Equivalent of War. And James basically argues in that essay, like, look, people know that war is bad, and yet they're attracted to it over and over again. People get excited about the idea of going to war and that sort of thing. And so instead of telling people, you need to stop doing this sort of stuff, you need to be a pacifist, um, we need to take them seriously uh, as moral agents and say, what are they getting out of the idea of war? Um, there's some sort of uh, perhaps patriotic connection that they're getting out of it. Can we provide that connection by other means? And this is the sort of thing that I would want to say about football. So people are getting something out of football, right? People are getting something out of their connection to their sports teams that I think we're desperately missing um, in contemporary America, this kind of connection to our community and to people around us who um, might look different than we do. Um, but we're getting something significant out of football, and it's so significant that it's causing us to abandon apparently held values in other areas. So what if we attempted to find other ways of producing those values? What if we took seriously the need to um, have institutions in place to offer some sort of um, communal connection or fellow feeling amongst um, our community members that didn't rely on this um, highly destructive uh, game? Right. So, I mean, you can argue, I think. So, um, Yuval Harari, the guy who wrote Sapiens, you know, one of the things that he says is that that Homo sapiens is unique in its ability to believe in and be motivated by something that's purely imaginary. You know, that you couldn't get 50,000 chimpanzees to sit in a stadium and, and sit still and not fight with each other and, in fact, to be bonded with each other because they like the people wearing or the chimpanzees wearing pinstripes on the field. Totally. And they hate the chimpanzees wearing red and blue. There's just no way in the world you could explain that to another animal other than a human being and and get them to understand it. Uh, It it is totally imaginary. You don't really benefit in any way, uh, in any tangible way from from sports fandom or even the success of your sports team. And, And there is a tremendous amount of bonding that goes on and a tremendous amount of division that goes on. So if I'm walking, I have the experience of walking in Montreal or Belfast and seeing somebody wearing a Packers hat and immediately getting into a big conversation with them, a terribly friendly conversation uh, with them. But, you know, just in the same way, though, I mean, it wouldn't go the same way if it were the Minnesota Vikings, who I would be obliged to to dislike, right? So (laughs) it it both unites and divides, right? Absolutely. Um, What I would say about this, though, is that although this... um, connection uh, or, or the significance of the team or whatever, although it is um, socially constructed, right, that there there is no significance to the meaning of a sports team apart from our agreement that this thing matters, that, that the Packers signify something. Um, although it's socially constructed, I wouldn't say that it's imaginary. Um, it is constructed, but nevertheless real. It has real effects on our lives, right? Um, so I think in the example that you gave, we could we could draw a parallel sort of um, 
uh, analogy to something like the institution of marriage or something like money. Um, these things are only significant. So marriage is only significant when we, you know, say the magic words in front of people and all of this stuff, because we as a culture have decided this is what this particular thing means, that it has a particular set of legal and social consequences, um, that we're going to treat people differently as a result of it. And so it's real, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't make sense to say that this thing is imaginary, but um, it is nevertheless something that is human created. Um, and I would say the same thing about um, about these sports teams um, and about our sports fandom. Even though, um, you're right, it doesn't track something, um, let's see, materially significant apart from the involvement of humans, it nevertheless is real and something that we ought to um, I would say grapple with, uh, ethically speaking. So one of the things that you've talked about here also is that notion of uh, of identifying football players as people. And I know that you feel like in, in fantasy football, because in fact, teams become less important, bordering on irrelevant, and individual players uh, become more important, uh, you can become excited about an individual person, which is probably a better thing than the fetishism of team worship. But it does also seem that, you know, the, the paradox here is that in the era of free agency, when football players, baseball players, basketball players have had more freedom to pursue their own interests, that's kind of contributed to the emptying out of the personal, well, let's actually let a different philosopher, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, explain what's happened. Loyalty to any one sports team is pretty hard to justify because the players are always changing. The team can move to another city. You're actually rooting for the clothes when you get right down to it. You know what I mean? You are standing and cheering and yelling for your clothes to beat the clothes from another city. Fans will be so in love with a player, but if he goes to another team, they boo him. This is the same human being in a different shirt. They hate him now. Boo! Different shirt! So, Aaron, I mean, in a way, this is good news for the players that they can move around. They are not owned permanently by one owner, which was tended to be more the case, like in baseball, pre-Kirk Flood. This is a good thing that they have agency, but it's a bad thing in the sense that it empties out that human connection you're talking about. I think that there's a bit of a double-edged sword here because you're right. On the one hand, when we can um, focus on and celebrate the accomplishments of an individual um, to the extent that it gives that individual greater uh, leverage, I would say, in contracting um, fair wages for his services, that's a great thing. Um, However, uh, it's not obvious to me, um, either as a... uh, you know, somebody who actually likes sports, um, or as a philosopher, that um, that the model of this in fantasy football is something to be celebrated. Because I think that what happens um, is that rather than focusing on individual players as human beings, what fantasy football does is invite us to um, instrumentalize those players, right, in the service of our gambling ends, and to expect that we deserve something from them, essentially. So, like, when our um, star quarterback um, gets hurt um, in the middle of a game and this tanks our fantasy football score, we tend to get, you know, upset about that. We tend to think, like, well, darn it, I shouldn't have, you know, put that guy on the bench, he's all, or excuse me, on the field, he's always um, letting me down or something. 
And so this way of viewing players as uh, individuals doesn't necessarily, I think, invite us to view them as individual humans, but rather as people whose output is quantifiable in such a way that we can most effectively instrumentalize it. And that's not necessarily humanizing either. No, you've basically become Jerry Jones, right? Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) And that can't be a good thing. (laughs) In in fact, it has to be inherently a really, really bad thing. However, still, I don't want to wreck your uh, fun with fantasy football, Aaron Tarver, so I'll stop talking. But you've been uh, wonderful to talk to. I hope we can speak again. Associate Professor of Philosophy at Oxford College of Emory University, the author of The Eye in Team, Sports Fandom and the Reproduction of Identity. Thanks for sharing your thoughts today. Thanks so much for having me. All right. We're going to move over to the baseballings uh, after this uh, break, uh, and we'll be talking as we like to do whenever we can with Ben Lindbergh. We're going to kick your collective posterior. Of course, you realize we're speaking figuratively. Our stats are thoroughly impressive. All right. You know, I don't. I love Darren Tarver, but I don't think she gave enough uh, weight to my idea of moral carbon offsets. You know, why can't I root for the Packers and then go out and raise a lot of money for a, a women's shelter or something? You know, why why isn't that okay? Why doesn't that help? Uh, all right, that'll be a question for another day. Ben Lindbergh is back with a staff writer at The Ringer. We love The Ringer. His most recent book is The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. Ben joins us via Skype. Uh, welcome back to our show, Ben Lindbergh. Hey, Colin. Good to be back. So I'm going to begin with a topic that you, uh, I believe, know nothing about, uh, and that would be the report uh, that's happened in the last couple of days where where Major League Baseball has found it necessary, or at least found it advisable, to warn players that gas station erectile pills, I don't know what to call them, actually, might have performance-enhancing drugs in them. I mean, obviously, they do have performance-enhancing drugs in them if you construe the word performance more broadly, but might have things that it would be bad to test positive for in terms of one's ability to continue playing Major League Baseball. Uh, do you? I'll just let you have a hot take about that, and then we'll move <laughs> on. Well, I've always wondered who would be either misguided or brave enough to buy medication from a gas station with unknown ingredients. And now we know, I guess it's Major League Baseball players. And the only thing I can think is that such a large percentage of the advertising for actual ED medication happens during baseball games that baseball players just don't have access to that because they're busy during the game. So maybe they don't know that there's a a safer and better alternative out there. But yes, Evidently, this usage is so widespread that MLB and the Players Association felt the need to send a memo around because these uh, pills are, you know, unregulated and who knows what's in them. And according to uh, this memo, at least some players may have tested positive because of substances that were in those pills, not to their knowledge, but it is kind of incumbent upon players to know what they are ingesting because, of course, there is a long list of banned substances and they have to be careful lest they trigger one of those positive tests uh, without actually taking the thing that they thought they were taking. 
Ben, that was an excellent hot take. Uh, I would add that <laughs> it may help us understand one of the great baseball mysteries, which is what uh, base runners are talking to the first baseman about if they reach first base. Uh, I've been told in the past that an awful lot of times it is about the P word, and the P word is not performance. Uh, all right, so let's move on to something that you are comfortable talking about. Uh, and there's, there's been quite a bit made recently about the fact that uh, this this there's a generation, a cohort of very, very young players who are bursting into the major leagues and just doing things that we traditionally thought you you might have to kind of learn a little bit more, figure out a little bit more, get your get your sea legs uh, with two or three years in the major leagues. As a Red Sox fan, uh, Rafael Devers at age 22 is the one that I've been watching with great excitement. But he's kind of an old man uh, in the world that you've been writing about. So tell us more about it. Yes, I suppose, ironically, given what we just discussed, baseball is a a young man's game more so than it ever has been before. And I wrote about this recently. If you look at the offensive performance of players, not just in their 20s, although that's certainly significant, too, but especially in their early 20s, players like Fernando Tatis Jr., who unfortunately just got hurt and is probably done for the year, but was uh, on a almost an MVP pace if you extrapolate it from the time that he was able to play, as well as players like Ronald Acuna and Juan Soto in the NL East, guys who are in their sophomore seasons and haven't missed a beat. The performance of players 21 and younger is really historic. Players this young have never been this good. And even if you just look at players anywhere in their 20s, the share of the overall value from position players that those players have produced is higher than it's been at any point in history. So we just came out of the so-called steroid era when the aging pattern was very atypical, where (laughs) players would gradually get better and then they would peak later than they had at any point in baseball history and then decline very gracefully and gradually, presumably because they had some chemical assistance that was not obtained from a gas station. And now that pattern has completely reversed itself where we're seeing old hitters really struggle to maintain their previous production, whereas young players are just coming up in record numbers and performing from the get-go. But I think, Ben, also there's a way in which this shifts a little bit part of the ethos of baseball as compared to the other two major team professional sports. I don't count hockey as a major team professional sport, nor do I know anything about it. But so, uh, you know, in basketball and football, basically there's people uh, out of college, right out of college, every single year, every single NFL franchise is going to put some rookies out on the field uh, to start games. Uh, In basketball, why wait for four years of college? You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, the understanding is that there are people who are 16, 17 years old who are ready to play in the NBA. But the idea of baseball always was, no, no, you're not ready. That's why there's this vast, complicated, layered minor league system. Is something changing about that or is we're just seeing prodigiously talented people who get to skip all that? or, Or what do you make of it? Yeah, what you said about basketball and football is becoming true of hockey, too, where you're seeing top draft picks, guys who are very young, just step into prominent roles and perform right away. That has never been the case in baseball, with some very rare exceptions. And it's still not the case quite to the extent of those other major sports. You're not going to see first round draft picks in baseball just go directly from the draft to the major leagues. There is still a seasoning process that happens. 
but it's potentially getting shorter for at least the most talented players. And I think there are a few reasons for this. You know, there's always the possibility that it's somewhat cyclical, that we just happen to be seeing a real crop of young players that is historic and won't be repeated. But I think it's more than that. I think it's that teams have improved at player valuation. So they've gotten better at drafting players. They've gotten better at signing amateur players. And so those players pan out more often. And they've also gotten better at player development. I just wrote a a book about the player development revolution that is going on in baseball these days because of new technology, new coaching techniques, new non-traditional thinking that is finding its way into the game among coaches. Coaches used to be, you know, solely almost former high-level players, and they would teach the things that they had been taught. And so there was sort of a, a stagnation in instruction. And now that is completely turning around so that players today are coming up knowing things that a previous generation of players either never knew or had to wait years and and learn through trial and error and failure. And guys are coming up today with those good habits and practices already ingrained. Uh, I think you also see teams getting more efficient about promoting players when they are actually ready because you have new technology in the minor leagues that can tell you with a greater degree of accuracy how a player is performing. And so you can say with some confidence, yes, this player is major league ready. And so we will promote him now and expect him to succeed right away. I wonder also, and maybe this is a way of... um of transferring or segueing over to uh, Otani and the Angels a little bit. So here we have this prodigiously talented uh, Japanese hitter who also is a prodigiously talented pitcher, although he hasn't been able to do that uh, this year because of injury problems. And there's some questions, I guess, about whether the Angels should let him be a pitcher because he's so valuable to them as a hitter. And you've had some thoughts about this. Um, So give them to us. Yes, I I feel quite strongly about this, actually, because Shohei Otani's quest to become really the first full-time star-level two-way player since Babe Ruth, so, you know, more than a century now, has kind of captivated my attention for the past couple of years. And what we've seen with Otani is because he is trying to break the mold, because he is trying to do something that no one else does, and really that we thought it wasn't possible to do given the caliber of play in baseball these days, Every time he succeeds disproportionately at one aspect or the other, he's either doing better at hitting or doing better at pitching. There are immediately calls for him to focus on that one thing and not essentially cannibalize his playing time at that one thing by trying to do two jobs at once. So last spring, before he even made his major league debut, he was thought to be a better pitching prospect than a hitting prospect, and he struggled to hit in spring training. And so everyone was casting doubt on the idea that he could be a successful major league hitter and saying he should just be a pitcher. Well, since then, he did have some success as a pitcher, but then he got hurt and had to stop pitching. But he has been able to continue hitting, and he's been better than expected at that to the point that now everyone is saying, well, he should just be a hitter full time. He shouldn't have to sit and take days off to pitch. It's more valuable to have his bat and his glove in the lineup every day. And I've argued that I really think that we need to give this experiment time to succeed. We have to see what Otani can do on both sides of the ball in a full, healthy season. And he will be healthy and back by opening day next year. And 
all indications are that he wants to continue to be a two-way player and that the Angels are going to let him do that. But you do see calls in the media, I think, to have him conform and, and be a more conventional player. And I think there's just potential for Otani to be the best story in the sport and kind of a, a breakout story that can captivate people who are not already baseball fans. And I think it would be a real shame if he was not allowed to make a, a full attempt to do that. All right, I'm going to bring up an idea which uh, is based on my total lack of knowledge and gut instinct, and you are completely empowered and allowed to say it's a stupid idea. Um, but one of the things that I think about when I look at Otani is that, you know, as much as baseball has tried to, in all the ways that you were talking about before, get smarter and smarter about player development, figure out what players are good at and how to make them even better at those things, and which kind of points you towards an era of specialization— I think actually there are ways in which that the opposite is happening that you know that that you have suddenly instead of closers who can only pitch in the ninth inning we're going back a little bit more to closers who come in uh, in the seventh inning we now have a thing called openers pitchers mm-hmm. who are designated only to pitch two or three innings at the at the start of a game as part of a kind of uh, pitching by committee you have you have catchers like Russell Martin and Christian Vasquez who've been playing a lot of infield lately. Russell Martin's actually started at shortstop, which is kind of an unthinkable thing for a catcher to do. Kevin Cash, the manager of the Rays, has been doing stuff like moving a reliever to first base so he can bring in a different reliever and then bring this reliever back, which I suppose is a little bit more in that era of specialization. But I think we have this tendency to think, oh, this person can only do this. This person is only good at this thing. Whereas I think if you said to Mike Trout, you know, we have an emergency, Mike, and we're just going to need you at second base for the rest of the season. He'd probably say, okay, give me like a week to take ground balls and I'll get ready. And sure, I can do that. You know, I mean, these guys are athletes. They can do a lot of things. Yeah. Well, I don't doubt Mike Trout's ability to do anything at this point, (laughs) but I think you're right in the sense that we actually have seen a trend toward more multi-position players. So players who don't just play the same position game after game, but are capable of moving from position to position, from the infield to the outfield and back again, depending on that day's needs and the matchup and who needs a day off and, and that sort of thing. That's partly a response to the fact that there are just fewer position players on most rosters right now because bullpens have kept growing. Teams are carrying more pitchers and so it's more valuable to have hitters who can play multiple positions because you can't carry an extra outfielder, an extra infielder the way that you used to. But I think it's also a recognition of the fact that today's players are very athletic and capable and they can do certain things that I think maybe we were trying to fit them into certain boxes that we didn't have to. On the other hand, what Otani is doing, I think, is really in a separate class because he can hit and pitch. And those are two distinctive skills. And one of the ways that we can track the improvement in the caliber of play in baseball is actually by looking at how successful pitchers are at hitting. Because, of course, pitchers are not selected for their skill in hitting. They are recruited by how well they can pitch. And so pitchers really haven't gotten much better at hitting. And meanwhile, everyone else in the league has gotten better at hitting. And so if you you can track it year by year, decade by decade, pitchers have gotten worse and worse and worse at hitting. And that's part of the reason why a lot of people think that we should just have the universal DH now because pitchers are so outclassed as hitters that it's almost not worth watching them try it anymore. And so the fact that Otani can do it even now 
when no one else is capable really of even a credible performance as a, a pitcher at the plate, I think makes it especially impressive. Right. I mean, in a weird way, also another kind of quant driven thing, which is the just uh, the prevalence now of shifts in the infield means that, you know, third baseman has to be able to make the throw from essentially second base on right. some occasions. I mean, Mike Schmidt was not asked to do this ever, but you could wind up standing almost anywhere in the infield. You better be ready to play that position when you're there. Hey, so Ben, uh, before we uh, uh, lose you, there's so many things that I do want to talk about. Well, just since we just mentioned Mike Trout. So the I was watching the game the other night. My significant other was sitting near me, and uh, she doesn't really pay that much attention to baseball. And so I said, she she asked something about Mike Trout, and I said, you know, I mean, Mike Trout is the kind of player where if if I were to say in front of a bunch of people like Ben Lindbergh, he's maybe he may wind up being the best baseball player ever. People wouldn't shout me down anyway. I mean, that's actually mm-hmm. kind of a plausible argument at this point. Very much so. Yeah, he is off to the best start of any player through his age 27 season. He just turned 28 recently. No one has ever been better to that point. And of course, we can't forecast with a great degree of accuracy whether he will be the best over the next 10 years. But he seems to continually get better. There's certainly no sign that he's getting worse at anything. And every time there's any minor weakness identified in his game, he seems to make it a point to correct it and often turn it into a strength. So, for instance, he used to have kind of a a weak arm or at least a below average one. That was the only real black mark against him. And now he's improved his arm to the point where he's probably above average at that, too. So I think there is a greater recognition now of the historic pace that he's on for one thing, because he has just kept doing it year after year after year to the point that you can't ignore it now, even though he does play on the West Coast and a a lot of East Coasters don't get to see him that regularly, even though he plays for the Angels who are not going to make the playoffs again and he will not be seen on that October stage. I, I think you just can't argue with the stats and I think wins above replacement, there is uh, more belief in that stat, more acceptance of that stat as something that is truly telling about players. And that stat really kind of conveys how historic what he's doing is. And now that he's been around for a while and performing at this high level, he's actually equaling and surpassing some Hall of Famers career career values. So just the other day, he blew by Derek Jeter in career wins above replacement. And of course, he's played, I think, less than half as long as Jeter did. And so when you see Trout and all those other names right next to each other, I think you have to take a, a longer look. And even if you're somewhat skeptical about advanced stats, just seeing him grouped together with all those guys, you can't deny that he is off to a truly special start. Right. He's 28 years old. So, you know, based on our earlier conversation, by the time he's 32, he'll be a pathetic old man. Um, <laughs> right. But, but maybe not. You know, maybe he'll still be amazing. Well, Ben Lindbergh, it's so great to talk to you. There's so many other things I would like to talk to you about, a time permitting. Uh, but we should once again mention, as I'm scrolling around on my iPad, the exact title of your book, which is The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. Thank you for joining us again today. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. So our final our final topic today, we should bring Aaron Tarver back because this is a topic with vast philosophical consequences. Uh, with Jay-Z getting involved with the NFL, is it a deal with the devil or is it a step in the right direction? We'll tell you or speculate wildly when we get back.
All right, we're back. A special thanks to Jonathan McPants, uh, who produced uh, this show. Uh, although, I don't know why I should thank him. This is the kind of show he wants to do a lot of. So, uh, But he's still done a great job anyway. Kion Wolf's been on the board, making us sound uh, really good, too. Uh, the part of Bill Curry was played by Marv Thronbury. Uh, and we'll be back with the news tomorrow. We've all been to see the movie uh, Blinded by the Light, which juxtaposes uh, one young Pakistani uh, man's enthusiasm for Bruce Springsteen with some of the horrors of England under Thatcher. Um, all right. So, as I said, our final question today will be a profoundly philosophical and moral question. Uh, Des Beeler, a sports reporter for The Washington Post, is joining us now to talk about the arrangement, the deal that Jay-Z and his company, Rock Nation, uh, have has made with the NFL. So, first of all, welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. So uh, let's begin by just saying, what do we know of this deal? In other words, what sort of arrangement is this between his company and the NFL? Yeah, what, the only thing I think we really know for sure is that uh, Jay-Z's company, Rock Nation, is going to help. Um, it's going to advise, uh, that is to say, that's the wording that the NFL used in its sort of press release on, on the subject, advise on the selection of artists for major NFL performances such as the Super Bowl halftime show. And if if, um, if you remember from February, the, Super, the NFL had a lot of trouble rounding up sort of the top flight artists it usually likes to get for the uh, Super Bowl. And a lot of major pop stars such as Rihanna and Cardi B uh, said they would not play, they would expressly refuse to perform the, at the Super Bowl citing uh, the NFL's uh, you know, inability to to let Colin Kaepernick sign with the team. So the NFL had a little bit of a problem there. Maroon 5 was the halftime show. Uh, and a lot of people just uh, sort of thought it was sort of underwhelming. So Rock Nation ostensibly was was hired to help the NFL, I guess, come up with cooler, you know, either the Super Bowl halftime show or other musical events at the NFL, that's related to the NFL. But also um, they're on hand to advise the NFL on a social justice initiative that they formed uh, called Inspire Change. And I think that that's where Jay-Z has run into some problems with uh, Colin Kaepernick and some of his supporters within the NFL. Right. Um, we should say, actually, one of the artists that the NFL has had trouble rounding up in the past is Jay-Z, who at one point, I forget what year it was, said, "I need uh, you need me, I don't need you. Um, so that will be helpful, I guess, to them. But yeah, so there, there are ways in which, you know, it seems to some players like, well, you're kind of rewarding the NFL with whatever endorsement is implicit in this arrangement uh, without the NFL having made good on its greatest ill. There is still this, you know, it's bizarre. I mean, I'm a Green Bay Packers fan. Uh, They've got three possible backup quarterbacks on their roster, none of whom are anywhere near as good as Colin Kaepernick. And that could be said of a lot of different franchises. They, Washington Redskins used a guy this year, last year, who I think had to play the Madden game in order to learn the number of the players because he was like the fifth choice. So, but no Colin Kaepernick. I mean, there's a way in which this is like an original sin. If it doesn't get washed out, it's going to bother people forever. Yeah, and uh, I think that's that's the issue that um, most most notably Eric Reed, who's sort of the, the NFL, the current NFL player most closely tied to Colin Kaepernick. Eric Reed was a teammate of Colin Kaepernick with the San Francisco 49ers when Colin Kaepernick began kneeling during the national anthem. Reed was the first player to kneel right next to him. Reed has been one of the very few players who continues to kneel during the national anthem before games. He was out of the NFL himself for a little while and filed his own grievance against the NFL. Both he and Kaepernick settled their grievances at the same time uh, earlier this year. And basically Reed's position 
has been that, you know, the protests that they were doing during the national anthem weren't against the NFL. They were just using the platform that they had uh, as players there to bring their what they wanted to bring to the, to the public's attention were issues of racial injustice and most uh, most significantly uh, police brutality. And basically, they didn't have a problem with the NFL itself, but now they do because of the NFL shunning Colin Kaepernick. He hasn't been he has been able to sign with the team since becoming a free agent in March of 2017. And as you noted. Uh, I mean, it's it's gotten a little ridiculous. Some of the quarterbacks that have signed while Ka- Kaepernick remains unsigned are clearly inferior to him. And right. so he's got a pretty good case in that regard. So basically what their their point is that the NFL originally wasn't necessarily in the wrong in and of itself, but now it is in the wrong. It has committed its own injustice by ostracizing Colin Kaepernick. And until that wrong is righted, the NFL itself is in the wrong. And anyone who wants to work with the NFL to kind of paper over that injustice is, is, in, the wrong, is in the wrong himself. And, and that's where... That's where Jay-Z comes into it. Right. And so there is also the sense that the NFL sanctioned initiatives like Inspire Change um, run the risk of being weak tea. You know, this sort of uh, some of the players who are participating in that have been sort of critiqued by other players by saying, well, no, you're just kind of playing into their hands, doing what they want rather than us having the ability to express our concerns the way we feel we need to. Yeah, and I, I think what, I think one thing Jay Z didn't realize when he partnered with the NFL, and this was corroborated in a recent Wall Street Journal story, which cited people close to Jay Z and saying that he was shocked uh, at the backlash he got. Although he probably should have realized at the time that you know having a lot of photos taken of him yucking it up with Roger Goodell was, wasn't going to be a good look uh, in any case. But you know, I think he didn't realize that he was essentially taking a side in what what became sort of a schism among NFL players in the wake of the protests and then the negotiations with the NFL that sprung from those protests. You know, the NFL was desperate to put an end to the uh, protests, essentially. And also it was desperate to appear like it was responding in a positive way and taking uh, the concerns of the players seriously. And so this group of players formed called the Players Coalition that became the primary uh, body that did the negotiating with the NFL. And it's through those negotiations that the, this platform, Inspire Change, originated, as well as an $80 million grant from the NFL towards social justice initiatives, community-minded organizations favored by the players. And that all sounds well and good, but during, uh, but Reed and, and some other players, including Kenny Stills and the Miami Dolphins, broke away from the Players Coalition, and basically their point was, if Colin Kaepernick doesn't have a seat at this table, then this is essentially an illegitimate process. So for Jay-Z to come along and say, yeah, we're going to help Inspire Change, you know, we're, we're going to help augment what, the, what it's doing and advise on the directions it should take. He, I think he didn't realize at the time he was essentially taking the side of the Players Coalition against Kaepernick, or at least that's how uh, Eric Reed and Kaepernick perceived it. You know, Des, I, I don't know if much has been said about this so far, but, you know, if you look at the other side of this, one of the reasons that Kaepernick is where he is these days is that there's a big part of the NFL fan base that's incredibly conservative. They don't even want to listen to explanations about what the kneeling meant, uh, and and they don't want to put up with anything like that. And hence, I mean, he's he is essentially banned from the game for kneeling. Uh, you know, you've got Jay-Z coming in, who I would imagine doesn't necessarily sit all that well with that same group of people and you consider the fact that is by his own uh, his own biography he's a former drug dealer um, I mean is there any sort of conservative pushback against Jay-Z that you've heard of so far in addition to the pushback on the other side from the players uh, yeah I, th- I think there's been 
I think so, some people on the right have pointed out exactly what you said. Jay-Z's bio doesn't exactly speak well for himself. He did make a lot of money as a drug dealer that helped him get started in the music business. He's, you know, that, that's no secret. He's rapped about it uh, quite a bit. He's, you know, he's talked about it. So uh, that's, you know, that's part of his story and that maybe he, you know, and it, it might come up. I mean, we don't know. There, there was a story that emerged uh, that maybe his, one of the reasons he got, got in bed with the NFL was because it lined him up to possibly be a part owner of an NFL team. Uh, yeah. That report has essentially been refuted in some cases, so it's, it's hard to say whether that's true or not, but that might provide some, some background to sort of his motivation in doing this. But, of course, you know, in, in that case, if he were actually to try to become an NFL owner or even a part owner, he'd have to be vetted and approved by uh, three-quarters of the other owners. So, exactly. You know, that, and Des, that kind of thing. Des, we got to wrap yeah. this up here. I'm really sorry. Des Beeler, a sports reporter for The Washington Post, a great conversation. Thank you for doing this, and thank you for listening. We will be back tomorrow. All right.